God uses different methods to save men to himself. God has all kinds of different tools for accomplishing that specific work, namely salvation. For some, it's through a decisive Damascus Road experience where in an instant you were knocked off your proverbial horse and you were revealed for who you were in your sin and Christ was revealed instantly to you as the glorious Savior and you repented. We praise God for that. For others, they can't remember a moment when they weren't a Christian. This is our desire for our covenant children. We don't want grand conversion experiences for them. We want them to never remember a day where, of course, Jesus wasn't my Savior. Out of the mouth of nursing infants, I've prepared praise. We love that verse, and Jesus quoted it. Um, And so it's ours all the way down. For C.S. Lewis, the Lord used perhaps a more unconventional method, at least in part, to ultimately bring him to repentance and faith in Christ. And it came for him through moments when he was actually experiencing great joy, whether through reading a good book or being in the beauty of nature or listening to wonderful music. Yet this joy for him would only highlight the fact that nothing in this world could actually truly satisfy him. So it would awaken a longing, and then he would try to try to grab it with whatever the thing was, and it would evaporate for him. And he said it was a strange mix of pleasure that really ended in feeling more like pain. It was this insatiable longing. And he then reasoned, I, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, well, then the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And that was one of the things that the Lord used to use his language, drag him kicking and screaming into the kingdom. And of course, the longing is the longing that Christ came to satisfy. John 4, the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, physical H2O water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, he'll never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Christ is the final object of all human desire. Christ really is the consolation of Israel. Christ plus nothing really equals everything. And yet... Even as Christians, we we still live in the tension of this in-between. We have, in a sense, arrived, and yet we are still very much in pilgrimage. Our souls are, as it were, stretched between heaven and earth, and we live in that tension of the already, but not yet. For instance, already we are Christ's. Already, you are united to Jesus Christ as fully as you could ever be. And yet, is not our greatest longing to finally be with Christ? See? Already, but not yet. Christ preached on union with Christ, and he said, I want to go see him, because that's far better. Already, not yet. Already, we are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has already passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are, not you will be. It is emphatic. You're already a new creation. 
But just a chapter earlier, 2 Corinthians 4, he acknowledges our outer self is wasting away. Already, but not yet. Or consider one more. We are a holy people. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are holy. We cannot be improved upon. Totally holy. Does people in your house think that you're totally holy? Like, would they say, yeah, like you nail it perfectly. (laughs) Already, but not yet. Perhaps no other verse captures this tension for this one specifically. Better than Hebrews 10.14, a profound verse. For by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ has made perfect those who have a lot of work to do to become perfect. Already, but not yet. So as we continue on in our series where we are walking element by element through our liturgy of covenant renewal, which you'll see in the liturgy, the different elements, today we are in part two of the consecration element. So we've already done call and confession, and now we are part two of consecration. And that verse from Hebrews is so vital for us understanding the the beauty and the power of what the Lord does in this service generally and specifically in the consecration element. So that essentially is a mission statement for what the Lord does in the consecration element of our service. Namely, he declares our identity over us by reminding us of the gospel, by putting before us again the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He says, by a single offering, you have been made perfect. There is nothing, few things more powerful in the cosmos than a father proclaiming an identity over their children. And so the father proclaims that identity over and over. We need to be reminded. If anybody was confirmed in their identity as a son, it would be Christ. And yet in his ministry, the father proclaimed over him, you are my beloved son and I'm well pleased. And so he does that in the service. We never mature past our need to hear the words of our father reminding us who we are. And this is part of the consecration section. Remember consecration to make with holy. So not just declare holy, but God says you're holy to me. That's what that word means. The gospel proclamation of our identity as God's people, as those who are perfected in the Son for all time. That is, he accomplishes the first part of Hebrews 10, 14. But he does more than that in the consecration time. Namely, he also accomplishes a little more of the back half of Hebrews 10, 14. That is to say, he actually makes us more holy in reality, in practice, during the Lord's Day service. So he doesn't make us more holy positionally. We cannot be made more holy positionally. We are holy. But practically, he makes us look like more of who we already are. So how does God do that? How does he sanctify us even more in this time? Well, you'll remember that the consecration element parallels the ascension offering of Israel's worship. And in our time today, we'll see that God does it the same way the priests of old prepared the ascension offering to release a pleasing aroma in Leviticus. He does it with a sword and with fire. Except now, 
It's not a physical blade of forged metal. It is the spiritual blade of his holy word. And this blade doesn't pass through our flesh, but it passes through our soul and our spirit and our thoughts. And it prepares us to lay on the altar as a living sacrifice. And then from there, we await fire to release the holy aroma that's now been prepared for. But now it's not a physical fire. Rather, it is the fire of the Holy Spirit that actually accomplishes the soul-deep word of applying the word, of pushing it into the corners of our life, of forming us according to the word. Only God can sanctify us and justify us. It's all of grace. And now this whole process is overseen, again, seeing the parallel with Leviticus, not by an earthly priest, but by our great high priest, Jesus Christ. This is what the ascension offering that the Lord required from Israel was foreshadowing. God was not ultimately after the aroma of bulls and goats. He was ultimately after the aroma of the holy worship and the holy lives of his people. That's what he loves. That's what Christ came to accomplish. Holiness in us all the way down. But this can't be accomplished with old covenant methods. They were a shadow. They were a picture. But they were unable to bring true holiness. The work requires a new covenant blade, the word, and a new covenant fire, the spirit, and a new covenant priest, Jesus Christ. And we see this playing out most clearly in Hebrews 4. So if you'll turn to Hebrews 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I really want you, if you can, to get your eyes on this. Now, remember the book of Hebrews? It's all about showing how Christ is the substance of what the old covenant was, the shadow. How Christ is, is the better fulfillment of these things. Hebrews 4, I'll first read 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow. It discerns the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And here... When the Lord refers to his word as the sharpest sword, he wasn't just searching for a random metaphor to make the point. Like, like how can I really drive home the point of like conviction? Sharp sword, that'll, that'll do the job. It's not less than that, but it's, it's much deeper than that. This is all sacrificial language. When the word of God is read or preached or heard or sung, as the blade passes through the animal to prepare it to release a pleasing aroma on the altar, so the word passes through us now, sanctifying us, preparing us to be a more holy, a more pleasing aroma. And this is not an easy process. We still have so much indwelling sin, so many presumptuous sins. We still struggle with anger and malice. Pride is still always lurking around every corner. We still have passing thoughts that disgust even us. And even our best intentions are marred and motivated often by selfish ambition. Or as Hebrews 12 says, our burdens and our sins, they cling so closely. 
And so the Lord comes with a sword. But how can we endure this? How can we endure this searching, this being laid open, this being prepared for the altar, before the Holy One who we have to give an account? Well, we better keep reading because there is a whole ocean of gospel on the other side of verse 13. Picking up now in Hebrews 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. But that sounds scary in light of what you just said, God. How can I hold fast when I'll be searched by you and undone by you? Verse 15. Because we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So because of that, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne, not of judgment, but of grace now. Because we are in Christ, that we may receive not condemnation, but mercy and grace to help in our time of need. So we can endure this searching blade because Christ is our high priest and he is our advocate and he is our righteousness and he is sympathetic with us. He understands perfectly our struggles and our temptations and he's already declared us holy and nothing can change Isn't it so comforting when somebody gets something about you that almost nobody can understand, like a part of your life? I was speaking to somebody recently who just had a heavy season. He said, I was talking to somebody else in the business, and I only had to say four words. And they said, oh, I totally get it. Isn't that such a comforting moment when somebody really gets what you thought nobody could understand? That's Christ for us. He didn't just forgive our sins, but he understands with patience and with sympathy sympathy, all of our weaknesses, all of our frailties. He has every single category of human experience, and he's sympathetic with that. Jesus Christ is your sympathetic high priest, and he is full of grace. And part of this grace is his commitment to seeing our sanctification through when we would have hit the eject button a long time ago. We would have said, I think we're actually pretty good. He says, oh no. Oh, there is so much more glory to be revealed. And so he forces the issue. He doesn't use half measures. No. He attacks the tumor of sin with the sharpest blade in the universe. His holy, perfect, efficacious, living word, and he does it by the Holy Spirit of God. God's word does not, will not, cannot return void when he sets it to do something. Through it, Christ will accomplish in us the holiness that he purchased on the cross. He is going to work it out, baby. And he does it with us in the Lord's Day service. Of course, all the time, but poignantly and potently together as a people. And this is why we want our service to be saturated with Scripture. This is the cannon fodder for sanctification. That at any moment the Spirit falls, it can do unbelievably redemptive work in us. And so so practically, this is why the consecration part of our service is most Scripture-centric. 
This is where we have the scripture readings, typically from the Old and New Testaments. And if you're curious, we get these readings. I don't just pick them randomly. They're from something called the the lectionary, which is a Bible reading plan that millions of Christians use all throughout the world. And so every week we are unifying ourselves with a big swath of the universal church, all of us reading these scriptures together, typically in Old and New Testament. So there is a method to that madness. And then the consecration element culminates in the sermon. So, So this right now. This is the time when God's word is most potently brought to bear. This is when the word is not just read and it's not just taught, but the word is preached during the sermon. This is not a time for me to offer suggestions, to give some thoughts and reflections, to do a TED talk. This is a time for me to open the book and say, thus saith the Lord, And then through the power of the Spirit, bring it to bear on us in our time, in our place, with our needs and our sins and our temptations and our need for comforts. That's that's what we're doing here. 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. He has to say that because it's scary sometimes. I'm not free from the fear of man or the fear of woman. That's probably more potent in our time these days than the fear of man, if we're honest. Preach the word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season, not just when you feel like it. Preach it and reprove and rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's a really good verse. Like, really go after them and be so patient with them. That's what we need. That's what I need. And through this time, the Lord does sanctifying work. He is working right now. This is not pain-free work. Sanctification is not easy because the work that God is doing is eternally significant and goes all the way to the core of who we are. It turns out it's really hard to make us holy. And so if we say, ouch, that means it's probably working. It hits the nerve endings of our pride, but it is essential work. It is good work. It is holy work. And the devil hates it. That's why the Lord Jesus warned us that whenever the seed is scattered, the enemy is looking to snatch it away from us. How does he do that? Technology, maybe. Is that a distraction at all in our day? Maybe a little bit. Pride? Snatching the word? You don't like the way that I said something. It was true. You just didn't like the way I said it. You didn't like the way my hair looked when I said it. And so you say, well, because I was annoyed by him, therefore that word of God doesn't apply to me. That's Satan snatching the word. Those are a couple ways. And that's why the word, when it is read and is preached, we can't just listen passively. We need to be at attention. We need to be not unaware of the Satan's schemes. And we need to humble ourselves. Beneath the word, together. We're in this together. Here's one way to visualize this good and glorious work of sanctification that God is doing right now in you. There is a radiant new man or new woman that Christ has created in you. And it is real. And it is true. And you are a new creation. But you still have a lot of layers of dead skin. Old man's skin. So it's there. You are that person. But there's layers of dead skin still on top of you. 
Catch the drift? And so the Lord needs to exfoliate that. He needs to cut away that remaining old man in you to reveal more of the glory that's beaming through. Have you ever seen a person in their 80s and the outer person has wasted away, but the inner person has been renewed day by day for a long time? That type of beauty is untouchable. And that takes a long time. And that's what the Lord is doing. God does this through his word, by his spirit, revealing a little more, moment by moment, of our new creation. Moving us from one degree of glory to another. That's not just eschatological, as in that'll happen someday. Right now, move from one degree of glory to another, over and over again. Preparing us, like the ascension offering, to be placed on the altar and to release a pleasing aroma to God. This is the work of consecration that he accomplishes in this element of our liturgy. He declares us holy to himself, and then he works that out a little bit more. So that the distance between what we've been declared and who we are is is getting smaller. That makes sense. But as we know, the Lord's service is not just a one-way affair. It's just not God doing something for us throughout the service. We are in conversation with the Lord. That's why we do responsive readings. He speaks, and then we respond to him. Remember the flow of Romans 12. I appeal to you, brothers, therefore. So Paul is saying, listen up, listen to what I'm saying. I appeal to you, by the mercy of God, present your body as a living sacrifice. Remember, be prepared for the altar through that work. Holy and acceptable to God, which then is your spiritual worship. So there's a flow there. We become a living sacrifice, and then we offer spiritual worship in response. We respond to God in the service. And we consecrate the Lord as holy to us then. We declare that he is, declare that he is not just God, that he is our God. And that we will be totally loyal to him alone. So, so we, we constant, not that we make God more holy, we just say he, we are dedicated wholly to him now. And here's what that looks like in the service. First, this is why we say the creed each week. This is our corporate pre- pledge of allegiance as Christians. And notice I don't begin that time by saying, Christian, what do you affirm? I don't say, Christian, what doctrinal statement would you be willing to check off on. I don't say that. I say, Christian, what do you believe? And that comes from the Latin word credo. That's how the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed start with the word credo. And that means, this is what I believe. This is what I would live for. This is what I would die for. This is my creed. That's what we are declaring. We are not merely affirming a doctrinal statement We are declaring to God and to each other. Remember, we edify each other in the service by our activity. And to the angels and to the demons that we believe and trust only in the triune God of Scripture. We declare that we are actively smashing all other idols and we are actively rejecting all other gods. Mammon is not my God. Molech is not my God. Baal is not my God. The state is not my God. I am not my God. No. Nope. 
Hear ye all cosmos. This is my creed. And we say it together. No. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God of the covenants and the God of salvation is my God. The Father and the Son and the Spirit. The three in one is our God. So when the creed comes each week, dear saints, I admonish you. Don't just affirm it. Declare it. Declare it like you mean it. And this will help you believe it even more. God designed it that way. Let's not mumble through the liturgy. Declare it as an act of worship and as an act of war. Declare it as an act of edification and an act of defiance to the enemy. So that's one way we consecrate ourselves to God on purpose. Next, one other way. There are others, but this is the last one we'll end on. Of course, we consecrate the Lord as holy by, as a people, worshiping through song. And I endeavor to remind us that there is a never-ending worship service in heaven right now that if we could see it with our eyes, we would be so bold over of angels declaring, holy is the Lord, and we get caught up into that. They are consecrating the Lord as holy, and we say yes. They sang holy, holy, holy. But after the ascension of Christ, they sang a new song. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Because of his blood, he ransomed the people for God. And so those are kind of the two categories of songs that we sing to consecrate the Lord as holy. We worship him for who he is. He didn't need to do anything. Just his holiness, he's worthy of worship. Creature, creator, it is right to worship But we also have another category. We worship him as redeemer for what he's done. We worship him for who he is. We worship him for what he has done. And I said a few weeks back that when we sing, we ought to be giving the holy angels a run for their money. And that's not me just being cute. That's true. And here's why. They didn't need to be redeemed. They didn't didn't fall. They didn't sin. And yet when they saw what Christ accomplished for us, they fell on their faith faith and started proclaiming a new song of the worth and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Just when they saw what he did for us. So how much more? How much more? The ones who have been ransomed. That's us. We were ransomed by the the blood of the Son of God. And so we worship him. So yes, Christians are a singing people, and we ought to sing throughout the week, in our homes, during our commutes, in our small groups. But the most important songs we sing happen during the Lord's Day service. Because this is when we are gathered as the company of the redeemed in the throne room of our Savior King for the purpose of praising the one who is worthy of all of our praises. And as that smoke arose from the ascension offering as a pleasing aroma, so our praises go up to the Lord as a pleasing aroma. Psalm 141, 1 and 2. This is really neat. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. That works well for a church that meets at 4 o'clock at night. And also, that's why we love to learn and to sing psalms and hymns that are God-centered, that, that we don't 
decide the merit of them initially based on how they made me feel, but whether they are fitting the king, whether they are worthy of what God has done, whether they, they are articulate our redemption in the holiness of God in a way that honors the king. Not that we can't sing simple songs. That's, that's, that's not my point. But we have become so man-centered in our worship where we stand over judgment of everything that happens in the church service and say, I don't really like that one. I saw somebody once say, you didn't like the worship service? Good, it wasn't for you. (laughs) So saints of God, let's not be those who mumble our way through worship in the throne room of God, but then get in our cars and sing with all of our hearts pagan anthems on the way home. These things ought not be. We need to ask ourselves, do I have any clue what Jesus Christ has accomplished for me? And let that stir in us. We want to be Psalm 89 saints that says, Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, and who exult in your name all the day, and then who are in your righteousness exalted. And growing up into this takes work. It takes work. Because often when you go to church, the incredible band does all the work for you. You might as well be at the CMA Awards. And it's really not all that noticeable if you sing or not, because it's it's really loud. And that's fantastic to have talented Christians. But at Pilgrim Hill, we, we don't have a band. We have a piano, which is wonderful. And our voices are the primary instruments. And so it matters that we sing out. It matters that we make melody. It matters that we lift the festal shouts. And men, I encourage you, lead out here. You are not too cool or too manly to sing loud. As the men go, so the church goes. And there is nothing more beautiful than a man self-forgetfully proclaims the glory of Jesus Christ. And his kids just watch him. Yeah, that's what Christians do. That makes sense. I think I'll do that all my days as well. It's a powerful thing. Oh, how edifying it is when the saints lift their voices to the Lord together, and then you can, you can hear them. My favorite 30 seconds of the week is the doxology at the end. Hear the saints. Hear those voices lifting. Psalm 22.3. You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Chew on that one for a while. So Pilgrim Hill. When it's time to consecrate the Lord as holy in the service, let us do this good, noble, glorious work on purpose. And yes, it is work. The liturgy requires something from you, and that's a good thing. Because remember when Aaronah offered to give King David an oxen for free to sacrifice. Remember what David said? He said, no. How could I possibly offer something to the Lord that cost me nothing? And so we're living sacrifices. It costs us something. But we're also growing our spiritual muscles. And we're growing more radiant in the process. Not just consuming, but being dignified to participate with the Holy One in worship. That's what we're doing. And as we grow in our radiance, in our worship, to Psalm 34, 5, to put under this statement, That says those who look to him are radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. So that's what we want. We want to be a radiant people. We want to be the elves in the land of works. As we grow in our radiance and our worship, it will flow out into our lives during the next six days of the week. 
and as we go out as a radiant army, it'll push back the darkness more and more, and we will be a more burning and blazing beacon for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They might shout us down on, on Facebook, but when they sing, see us singing and feasting and worshiping King Jesus, it's its own apologetic. You're a city on the hill. They'll see your good works and then glorify your Father as a response. And so it matters. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the unimaginable dignity that you would not just welcome us into your throne room, that you would not just allow us one of the nosebleed seats, but you would give us the VIP seating. And that you wouldn't just allow us in, but that you would seek and to save those who were in active rebellion to you at the price of your blood. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray, so I've, I've laid out gunpowder. <laughs> I pray that fire would fall and that you would do this formative work where we are the radiant ones. We can't fake that. We need you to produce that. For our joy and for your glory and for the salvation of our city and, and for our great-grandchildren's salvation. So do it, Lord. And now we would pray the way our Lord Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory.